Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Welcome back, listeners, to the third installment in my Superman movie review series. Today I am reviewing Superman 3. This is your host, Corbin. And if you missed your guide to Superman 3 that came out last week, that gives you behind-the-scenes production, how the film came to be made, box office reception, critical reception, what audiences thought of it at the time when it came out in 1983. So you're not going to want to miss that. That is the first link in the description below. And while you're down there, you can uh, check out the timestamps if you're ready to jump straight into the review. Uh, we also have a curated list of episodes to listen to after this one. Of course, if you haven't heard... My review of Superman 1, Superman 2, and the Richard Donner cut. You're not going to want to miss those, so go ahead and check those out. All kinds of goodies down there below, so make sure to check down below no matter where you're listening at on the podcast. And leaving five stars is a great way to help us out. So it was no surprise I had very mixed feelings on Superman 2. Now, coming into Superman 3, it had been less than two years. Audiences really didn't have to wait very long but this trailer, would this trailer have gotten me into theaters in 1983? I suppose that depends on how old I would have been. Uh, this trailer, looking at it, you know, with my adult eyes is just a big what the fudge. It is way off from the tone of the first one, more in line with the tone of the second, which is what I was expecting. It does look mildly interesting, like something like this sounds so weird, I'd have to see it. As an adult, it would not be enough to get me into the theaters. As a kid, sure, why wouldn't I want to go see a Superman movie? Especially this one looks to have all of the action, all of the thrills that, you know, I've come to expect with the first two films so far. So it does put a major emphasis on the action, on the plight of the story. Now, I'm going to go ahead and say something here before we jump into the review. I don't think the trailer is very accurate as to what the movie actually represents as far as plotting goes, especially since this movie leans into comedy a lot, leans into this like kind of goofy lightheartedness that's not quite present in the trailer. It's a little bit there, but nevertheless, this trailer, no, it would not get me into theaters. And the only thing that I knew about this movie was there was a dual Superman. Superman fought Superman. And that was revealed earlier when the title was going to be Superman versus Superman. If you want to find out why it didn't get named that, go listen to your guide to Superman 3. That's all I knew. I knew that was a part of this movie. I did not know anything else. Well, listeners, if you have not seen Superman 3 and you don't want the film spoiled for you, go ahead and click pause right now. It is streaming on HBO Max. It's also easily available to pick up on uh, your physical copies or your digital copy. So go ahead and check out the movie and then come back here and click play and we'll be ready to talk about it. Here is your 30-second plot summary. Lois wins a trip to the Bahamas, and she disappears for the rest of the movie until the last couple minutes. Clark goes to his high school reunion, where he falls for Lana Lang, who actually was in the very first film. Meanwhile, Gus Gorman is the smartest computer genius in the world, despite only taking one class. He works at the behest of the nefarious tycoon Ross Webster, 
who is the replacement of Lex Luthor. The two try to take over all commercial industry until Superman thwarts their plans. Gus gives Superman a kryptonite compound that turns Superman into a belligerent jerk. That is until his body splits apart and his good self fights his bad self with his good self winning. The good Superman now restored stops Webster and his gang from using their newly built supercomputer, which is bigger than the entire cave, to rule the world. Meanwhile, back in Metropolis, Lana comes to work at the Daily Planet, possibly making Lois jealous, and we can only assume Clark and Lana live happily ever after as credits roll. Right off the bat, let's talk about the opening of this movie before we get into positive and negatives, because the opening can definitely set the tone for a movie. Actually, it should. This opening is pure comedy. It actually opens with Richard Pryor on the unemployment line. Strange choice considering this is a Superman movie, not a Richard Pryor movie. I know Richard Pryor was a very big get for this movie. He appears on the poster with Superman. He was paid $5 million. He was huge at this time. So Richard Lester's impulses for Superman 2 were to take the film in comedic directions. That's exactly what I figured was going to happen here. Here, this opens with the comedy. It is a really weird, also blurry credits opening um, where it's kind of like credits on the bottom half of the screen and action going on on the top. It's kind of this Rube Goldbergian disaster where uh, Miss Tessmacher role has been replaced by this character named Lorelai. And she's just so beautiful walking down the street in her like polka dot dress that it causes all of this mayhem to happen. It, this seems something like something more like out of Baby's Day Out than from Superman. It's just obviously setting the tone for a very different movie. And at least they're doing that right off the bat. And then, of course, we finally get to Superman saving this guy who is drowning in his car in the middle of downtown. It's strange, to say the least. Um, but then we do jump back to the Daily Planet, where we get our Margot Kidder scene. This is very surprising to me to learn She's not even in five minutes of the movie, probably. She wins a trip to Bermuda, and then at the very end, she comes back from her trip. She looks very different once again, and 11 minutes into the movie, she's gone. And Clark and her relationship seems to be pretty much over. It's just back to being a platonic work relationship, because in this movie, Clark is going to fall back in love with Lana Lang, his the high school girl that he had a crush on we saw in Superman the movie. And of course, I did go back and watch that scene from the first film. She is Lana, played by a different actress, of course. And Brad, the football star, is kind of the bully to Clark. Brad is also back here once again, except he's a washed up high school guy. It's their class reunion. This movie is a surprising class reunion type style movie, at least for the first act. One of the other things that does take me by surprise, though, is Jimmy Olsen kind of finally gets his time to shine. He has really been relegated to tiny bits and pieces of the movie, at least the theatrical versions. He actually goes on a trip with Clark because Lois has been replaced. He tries to get some good action shots, but ends up falling and having some broken bones and smoke inhalation on their way to Smallville, Kansas. And Jimmy is promptly escorted out of this film but he does he does get a little bit here in the first act that was a little bit fun to see speaking of this fire the way superman puts it out is he freezes the top layer of a lake picks up this ice and flies it and drops it over the fire that was kind of a cool creative way to put out 
that big disaster, but I have to bring it up right here. These visual effects are a disaster. They are awful. It's been five years, and if you're including, you know, pre-production time on the first one, it's been over five years since that original movie came out, and the visual effects are very lackluster. They're noticeably poor, and I know, you know, matting and, you know, the very, very early age of, you know, digital effects or drawing in effects wasn't great in the 80s. I just recently rewatched The NeverEnding Story. Some of that stuff is rough, but this is truly bad. And even the flying effect, Christopher Reeve was not pleased with parts of it. He called it useless. It it looks weird. They ended up going back to using wires instead of a harness. I still don't like the flying. It, it just looks so bad. It's so uninspired. It's so slow. He's supposed to be faster than a speeding bullet. And he looks like he's just, you know, jaunting through the sky. I, I don't like it. Speaking of a production standpoint, though, what I do like is Webster's ginormous office. It's kind of an all-in-one, you know, hideaway he has up at the top of this metropolis skyscraper. Very well production designed there. I, I like that a lot. Unfortunately, that's about the only production design I really like for this movie. Everything else is pretty uninspired, unfortunately. One thing I think a lot of people will be surprised about is more or less this is a reboot of the series because Donner is completely out of the picture. We no longer have in his influence anymore. It's just the Salkins and Richard Lester. David and Leslie Newman are back writing the script for the third time. And Reeve did get some influence on the script, but it really is kind of the original gang, you know, finally getting their say of what they want with the Superman movie. So this is pretty obvious. Donner's vision was an epic biblical style tale, whereas Lester wants to just go with some slapstick. 80s comedy doesn't really want to make anything too serious here. Thankfully, what does keep this movie probably together is Christopher Reeve's performance. He has done a fantastic job across the trilogy so far. He really does have this authentic presence to himself as portraying Superman. And when he becomes what I call the cantankerous Superman later on in the film, it really does play like this really scuzzy, sleazy guy that just is just really dark and really troubling. And then when he fights himself in the end as well, that, you know, split screen technology, that stuff, I, I'm very, very impressed. That's probably where all of their money went to. <laughs> Honestly, and of course, it's a body double at times as well, a stunt double. But nevertheless, I never questioned that he was, you know, fighting himself. And they really were at the infancy of that kind of technology. So I was very impressed with that. He does a great job, his performance. He's the real highlight of the movie, I would say. What is definitely a disappointment for me, though, is that Richard Pryor isn't all that good of an actor in this movie or funny. He plays this apprehensive bimbo. I think he does a fine job with, I guess, what he's been given. I find very little of his stuff to be funny. I'm not really laughing. To me, this just seems like, hey, Richard Pryor is popular get. Let's put him in the movie. And supposedly Pryor is, you know, improvising a lot of this stuff. I don't know if I've ever even seen a Richard Pryor movie, so I do have a big blind spot there. I know he was huge back in the day. I'd love to go see some of his his own material. He just doesn't work in this movie, um, especially supposedly to believe he's like the greatest computer mastermind of all time. He's just a savant. 
he doesn't really need a class. He just had this hidden talent. And of course, it's done in the most ridiculous of ways nowadays that we all, you know, know more about computers and have a better knowledge of that. People back then, you know, didn't really get it. This is just a disappointment, especially since I was looking forward to him being really funny and bringing a lot of comedy. It's just not there. Now, this is also a fairly mundane movie. There is very minimal setup within the first act. They really do kind of want to rush you along and get you into the story, which, you know, I do appreciate 30 minutes in. We're kind of we're kind of into that story. 45 minutes in, though, you realize it's just mundane. There's really not much to this story whatsoever. And once again, I think it kind of falls into the trap of the first Superman movie and not realizing the actual plot until about halfway through the film. And I got to say, it's not necessarily bad at the first half. You know, honestly, I like the first half better than the second half. And maybe that's because I was with it until it just kind of completely changes into a different movie where the villains, you know, motivations are finally realized. He figures out he has to stop Superman from thwarting his plans, which is exactly Lex Luthor's motivation from the first film. And then Superman, you know, for the second half of the movie becomes a jerk. He only fights himself in that tiny scene at the very end, which really shocked me before the big climax. And then by that point, I mean, I it had lost me by that point. I'm assuming a lot of people were lost as well uh, because it just wasn't giving me much of a reason to care about why Webster is controlling the coffee. Or, I mean, you get to see some people fighting each other over gas. I know that was a problem, mostly during, you know, the mid to late 70s, from what I understand, uh, maybe some early 70s as well with some, you know, energy crises. They also do throw out a lot of the rules they set up in the sequel film. Like I said, this really does feel like a reboot. They really don't want to be beholden to anything from the first two. And you could have missed the first two films and come into this and you wouldn't be behind whatsoever. I don't know if there's any carryover from either of those movies aside from the characters of Lana and Brad and Superman growing up in Smallville you get a little bit more of that backstory of course you're going to be missing some stuff you know with Lois and uh, Clark Clark is almost not in Metropolis at all he uh, actually doesn't play Clark a whole lot as a reporter um, there was more focus of that in the sequel it's not not really here anymore the reason I say a lot of this is because they clearly set up in the sequel, Superman can't love a mortal. To love a mortal, he must become mortal. That was the, like a major plot point in the second film. This one doesn't matter. Uh, it doesn't matter in this one um, because he wants to fall in love and be with Lana. And he just went through this whole emotional heartbreak of erase spoilers for Superman 2. He erases Lois's memory after they fall in love. Hence why she doesn't love him in this one is what we're assuming. Nevertheless, that's completely overridden in this and he's going to just go love Lana and we're not supposed to care about it whatsoever, I suppose. I did mention this just a few minutes ago, but just to put a finer point on it, the villain's plot, I mean plot doesn't occur until 57 minutes into the movie. That is far too long for a two hour film. Like I said, it really is about halfway through where they do kind of decide to switch gears here. Um... We also have a regressive take on the villain, where this villain is going to discover kryptonite. We've already seen this before. It's already been done before. 
they're really not inventing the wheel. They really are just kind of rehashing Superman in the way they seemingly wanted it probably all along. Of course, these villains, if I haven't, you know, touched on it already, their relationships are forced. They're uninteresting. They're pretty much copies of what we've seen already. And there's just no chemistry. Um, Ross Webster is wildly bland. He's just a bland potato. He's so boring. Um, there, there's just not much here. And once we get grouchy Superman, it's kind of fun to see him just be this really mischievous character. He doesn't do anything too terrible. He just does a lot of stuff to just kind of tick people off and just be a jerk in general. Um, and okay, I did write down the timestamp right here. Um, Clark Kent separating from Superman occurs 90 minutes into the movie without explanation. It's really, really strange. I know there's a lot of theories out there that it doesn't actually happen. It's more of this, you know, cosmic symbolism going on. There's plenty of theological things we could probably dive into, but I know these writers gave it a passing thought, if any at all, about the duality of Superman. You know, we talk about the duality of Christ between God and man. There's some, what of a, you know, we could ex we could explore that here, but we're not going to because the movie doesn't really explore it at all. It's occurs an hour and a half into it, and it's thrown away fairly quickly. And I really don't have a lot to say about the rest of the movie. I find the ending climax, the ending fight, to be pretty boring and kind of wildly ridiculous about this computer that can shoot Kryptonian rays and stop Superman. And truly, if Gus wanted to, he could kill Superman. That's how much of an evil genius his, he supposedly is. And of course, Ross is dumb. Lorelai is actually really smart. She just has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. And Gus is... No. Ross's sister, Vera, I think is her name. She's like consumed by the computer and she turns into kind of the cyborg. That's as much of a kind of a crazy villain we get here in this movie. But of course, it's all resolved. You know, all's well that ends well. Lois gets jealous. Clark supposedly is going to end up with Lana. She's moved to Metropolis. I'll be curious to see if they pick up on any of these plot threads or really make a sequel to this whatsoever. I know Superman 4 Audiences wouldn't get that until four years later. To me, I think they're probably going to do a fresh start and we're this is going to be kind of a one-off, just kind of like they're treating the first two as its own little duology. I'll be curious to see where they go with it. Superman 3 actually held promise for me for about the first half of the movie. Yeah, it's a bad 80s movie, but I typically find that to be entertaining, lighthearted fare. Now that I know what I'm in for, maybe I can rewatch this and enjoy both halves. But this really does become a different movie once Superman turns evil. What little does happen in this movie is uninspired. The stakes are non-existent. The villain is a bland potato. Richard Pryor is a big disappointment and there's just very little excitement in general. For some reason, they wanted to revert the franchise back to Batman 66 style comedics. It really needed to lean into that more if that's what they wanted. There's too many half measures here. This third entry is enough of its own thing to be enjoyed outside of the first two, but it's so watery it's hard to imagine anyone really liking it aside from children. Superman 3 receives 4 stars out of 10, with a solid not recommend. Now, keep this in mind, listeners. This movie did get horrible reviews. It has horrible ratings. Not the worst in the franchise that I'm going to be covering. I'm thankful to say that I, I don't think this movie was horrible. You'll notice if you listen to my review for Superman 2, 
I actually think Superman 3 is a slight step up over Superman 2. I think that movie was two clashing visions between the two Richards. Anytime you get a movie where another a new director comes in, it's just not going to be a complete vision. It's not going to it's just not going to click well. It's not going to jive together very well. This really is Lester's vision. We're getting, you know, a lot of the creative forces are working harmoniously together unlike the other films. I mean, yeah, it does feel kind of like two different movies. It sort of works in certain ways. I didn't think this movie was horrible. It's it's not good. I do think it's bad. I I do think it's not very good at all, but thankfully it's not horrible. So, so far, I will say I do like this better than Superman 2. I do think Richard Donner's cut of Superman 2 is better than both of these, and I'm still still ranking Superman the movie as my number one pick. But nevertheless, if I didn't already own this in my collection, would I add it? Probably, probably not. I mean, if I found this at Dollar Tree, I would probably pick it up. But otherwise, I mean, maybe just to be a preservationist and own all of the Reeves films, then yeah, I, I might. It's not one I would go seek out. Well, other film recommendations that I have for you to check out after this one, Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion. I just watched this with my wife for the first time not that long ago. This is a high school reunion movie for part of it anyway. I got a lot of Romy and Michelle vibes with some of just the comedy of it all. I really enjoyed that movie actually, so check that one out. I did mention this one earlier, Baby's Day Out. That movie is a lot of fun for families. I'm not sure if you're an adult, you would enjoy it yourself. I don't know. But watching it with the kids, I think you'll like it, especially if you like the comedy in this one. Now, War Games did also come out the same year as well. Another movie about, you know, computers gone amok and going to destroy the world. Um, I think that movie is far more enjoyable. That's a fun 80s movie with Matthew Broderick. I like that one a lot. So check out War Games. It's much better than this one. I'm also going to be recommending Tron. I have reviewed Tron and Tron Legacy. So go check out my reviews for those. I'll link to my reviews for Tron down below. Well, after this movie, and honestly, even before this movie, Reeve was ready to be done. He was ready to move on to different projects. But, you know, due to contractual obligations and he was going to get top billing, they were going to pay him more money. He really hadn't done a whole lot with the character at that point. He did come back for this one, but it was going to take over four years for him to come back, at least to theater screens. Now, clearly he came back, you know, in pre-production phase and in production phase earlier than that. Still a long time because audiences were going to be treated to Supergirl the following year after Superman 3. I have seen that one. I'm going to be reviewing it next week. Should be interesting, but... Audiences didn't even have to wait 18 months. It was about 17 months until Supergirl came out. Supergirl was originally supposed to be in this movie. Go listen to your guide for Superman 3 if you want to know more about that. But we will talk about that. That is its own thing. That And he does not show up. He is portrayed in a portrait, but he is not actually in that movie. He goes on to other projects, but we know he does come back. Well, listeners, the question after the show, do you agree with me? I know some people would call me crazy. Is Superman 3 better than Superman 2, the theatrical cut? I want to know your thoughts, so make sure to email me at silverscreenguide95 at gmail.com. The question in the email is down below, so you can reread that. Send me your responses. I'm curious to uh, talk about them. I'll read your answers on the show if you would like. 
Listeners, thank you for coming along with me on my review of Superman 3. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast because next week, oh boy, it's going to be a lot of fun. You're not going to want to miss my review of Supergirl. Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide.